Uh, take your Bible and look over to John chapter 21, and we're going to be specifically looking at verses 19 through 25 to close our time out. But if your kids, your children are gathered around, open to John chapter 21, and let me just go ahead and read for you verses 18 down through 25 of John 21. Jesus said to Peter in 21:18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining um, at, ta- at a table close to him, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saints spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but that if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let me pray for our time. Father, thank you for this marvelous, wonderful gospel that has touched my life and our lives respectively with the words and the deeds and the truthfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he brought salvation to us, that his life, his ministry, his death, his teaching, his resurrection to new life is our great hope even this day. Father, would you remind us of these truths this day? Speak to us a word regarding our following you. Restore even the brokenhearted. Build up those who are downcast. And Father, may we see you in a new and fresh way. We ask all of this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. Well, as we come to the closeout of John's gospel, we've been looking specifically at John chapter 20 and John chapter 21. That they, those chapters, deal with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember in John chapter 20, in 1 through 10, we dealt with the empty tomb. Both Mary Magdalene was at that empty tomb. John and Peter were also at that empty tomb. And then we tracked in John 20, 11 through 18, that the Lord Jesus Christ first appeared physically in bodily form to Mary Magdalene. She turned and saw the risen Lord. And then following from there, Jesus appeared to the disciples with Thomas absent. Then later in 20, he appeared to the disciples with Thomas present. 
And then we moved into chapter 21, and 1 through 14, he appeared again to the disciples on the sea or on the shore at Galilee. And then last time we were together, he restored the apostle Peter to ministry, to relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned last week that when he restored Peter, we know that at least from 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to Cephas or Peter. We know from Luke 24 that he appeared to Peter. So I don't think as we get to this restoration that we find at the close of John 21, that it was the first time, obviously, that Peter saw the risen Lord. But here in this passage and here in this conversation, he's restoring him to that apostolic office, to that place of leadership. It was very important both in Peter's own life and crucial to the book of Acts and crucial to the ongoing story that we find in the word of God. Now, after he told Peter in verse 18, that they will take you and stretch your hands out and carry you where you do not desire to go. He said this in verse 19 to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. There is really the focus of our time this morning. Here in that restoration process, the Lord told Peter to follow me. He told him that. You'll see in verse 19, if you glance down at verse 22, he said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And then Jesus said a second time in verse 22, you follow me. The ideal of following the Lord Jesus Christ. We often talk a lot about discipleship, We often talk about even what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, certainly if you took that phrase, a believer or even discipleship includes in it the aspect of following Christ, to follow him. Obviously, our Lord's message was not easy. Oh, yes, his message, while motivated by love, filled with compassion, Chocked full, if you will, with grace and mercy. His message offering forgiveness, offering peace, offering joy, both now and forevermore, was still demanding for sure. And so the Lord told Peter to follow me. And as you watch from your home and you're watching this live stream, he's commanded you today to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, so clear was this message in the Gospels that Jesus said this in Luke 9, in verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life For my sake, will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Luke 9, 23. There, even in a concise statement, 
is the distillation of what discipleship is. Let him come after me. Let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Really, when you think about the call of the gospel, it is a call to the person of Christ. And it is a call to self-denial. Jesus said, you will find your life by losing it. You will gain your life by abandoning it. And you will live life to the fullest by emptying yourself. I mean, it is a radical message. It was true then. And it's true today. Jesus remarkably stated later in Luke's gospel, in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me, and by the way, don't miss that. If anyone comes to me, he's calling us into a personal relationship, not some external following. You're coming to the person of Christ. But he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, Jesus said he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So here, as I draw you into this context, Peter was told by the Lord Jesus Christ to follow him. Or he told Peter, follow me. Uh, obviously, that's obedience when you think of following to Christ's commands. And that's our text. And in this text, let me set it up for you. It is Peter's restoration to the Lord himself. And we are looking at three truths that describe what that restoration looks like. And what's amazing is we look at the three truths that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to Peter. They're actually the truths today that involve the restoration of a believer to Christ and service today. In other words, what he told Peter on the shore at the Sea of Galilee. I pray that the Spirit of God would be speaking to each of you even this morning and speaking to even the children who have gathered on what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So three truths that describe what restoration looks like. We looked at the first two truths last week, and I'll just remind you of them. We noted here to Peter that it is a restoration compelled by love for Christ. It is a restoration compelled by love for Christ. Peter's triple denial, you remember earlier in the gospel, is placed alongside his three affirmations of his love. And then after those affirmations, Christ recommissions him to ministry. But he asked him three times, you remember, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And with every question, one question stated three times, there were really three affirmations by Peter. Yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, Lord, I love you. And then on the final one was implied, yes, but Lord, you know everything about me. But we noted last week that restoration begins with a compulsion to love the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Peter affirms that. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You know all things. And we drew out the principle there, true for Peter, true today, that all ministry done for Christ is motivated by a love for Christ. In other words, as he restored Peter, he's restoring that relationship and he's restoring him and compelling him by his love for Christ. And so service, we noted, flows from a heart that loves Christ. True then, true today. In other words, anything we do for Christ ought to be compelled by his love for us and our love for others. In fact, it's interesting here as he's restored and compelled by love that it was then that he recommissioned him, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. And then the third time he told Peter to feed my sheep. That Peter, as I recommission you to service, I'm recommissioning you to feed the sheep spiritual food that comes from the Word of God. But how true it was then and how true it is today. Anybody in service for Christ always ministers out of the overflow of his own love for the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, pay close attention to yourself and then to your teaching. And we looked last week when they asked Jesus, what is the great command in the Bible? And he said, the greatest command, you remember, is to love the Lord your, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus profoundly and remarkably said, that all the law and the prophets depend on those two commandments. So listen, it could be this morning, it could be in light of the virus, it could be in the scenario that you find yourself in, restoration for Peter, begin with a compulsion of a love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you're wondering if you've fallen away or if you feel fragmented, it always begins here. It's compelled by a love for Christ. But secondly... That restoration involves here a confirmation of sacrifice for Christ. Or literally a a restoration confirmed by sacrifice for Christ. And he told them, look again in verse 18. Truly I say to you that when you were young you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to him in verse 19 to indicate that Peter would die by crucifixion. His arms, his hands would be stretched out. In other words, when you were young, Peter, you used to do whatever you want with whoever you want. You went wherever you wanted to go. But Peter, the opposite will be true that when you get older, you will be taken to a place where you don't want to go and you will be dressed by Another as he's prepared to die by way of crucifixion. And you think here, his restoration was not only compelled by love, but it was confirmed by sacrifice. Peter, listen, as I restore you to your ministry and to your apostolic role, it is going to be confirmed as you move forward by your sacrifice for me. You might be thinking, gosh, what an ominous thing to tell Peter, and I I actually think not. 
I thought how encouraging it was to Peter. That the one who boasted that he would never failed, failed. Jesus said, before this night is over, you will have denied me three times. And now he hears Peter's affirmation of that love. And the Lord Jesus says to Peter, listen, you failed once, but you will follow me later. I think that was great encouragement to him. It gave him hope. It gave him boldness. You denied me once, but when you're older, you will follow me. But it's, it's confirmed by sacrifice. And having said that to Peter, and we'll pick up the text in verse 19, he said to him, follow me. And so here, it is a restoration compelled by love, confirmed by sacrifice. And the third truth, it is a restoration that is committed to follow Christ. A restoration that is committed to follow Christ. In fact, again, look at verse 19. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Follow me. What do you mean, what, what do you mean to follow me? To follow me, that expression, is to abandon yourself altogether. It is to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're wondering what does discipleship look like and what is a believer, this is a description of a believer, is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he told Philip all the way back in John 1.43 to follow me. And you're going to see here in a moment the last words of the Lord Jesus Christ to John the Apostle, and here specifically to Peter, the Lord addressing Peter, was to follow me. So he opens his gospel in 143 with an issue to follow me, and he closes his gospel with an issue here to follow me. I think it's interesting just to note that this command to follow me is in the present tense. And the thought that he's telling Peter, that he's telling you, is you continue to follow me. You continue to follow that narrow path, if you will. Go on following me, even today. Go on denying yourself. Go on taking up your cross. And go on following me. Now, this kind of obedience certainly is patterned for us in the Lord Jesus Christ who became obedient, Paul said in the book of Philippians, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now this kind of restoration, of course, is a restoration first into the presence of Christ, into his favor, we might even say under his smile. But it is also, here's the point, a restoration into the place of obedience. So it could be that you need to be restored. It's going to be compelled by love. It's going to be confirmed by sacrifice. But here it's going to be a commitment to follow Christ in a place of obedience. Discipleship then, as you know, Grace Church, is to follow him, is to forsake sin. It is a turning, even today, from every thought, every word, every deed, every habit that is contrary to God's law. And if I just stepped back with you, Peter's problem early on was that his self, his self-will 
refuse to bow to Christ. You remember in Caesarea Philippi, Peter, this Peter, was at the height of his spiritual experience. And do you remember when Jesus said to the disciples, and who do you say that I am? Some said this and some said another. But Jesus congratulated Peter when he confessed, do you remember, Christ, you are the Son of God. You are the Son of the living God. And do you remember that Christ told Peter that flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father. But then the Lord Jesus Christ, do you remember in Caesarea Philippi, begins to tell them after that statement by Peter that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer at the hands of the chief priest, that he's got to suffer at the hands of the scribes, that he will be crucified and on the third day rise again. It's as though Peter in his past interrupted him and said, Lord, far be this from you. I'll show you a better way to be the Messiah. I mean, think about it. The Lord Jesus Christ was pulled aside by Peter. Far be it from you that this should happen. Listen, I would say to you, one of the scariest things in all of the Bible is when in your life or my life, you seek to make the Lord Jesus Christ your servant to do the things your way rather than you being his servant to do things his way, whatever they may be. And so listen, Peter needed to subject himself. Peter needed to hear this commitment, if you will, to follow Christ. Peter, you've been exercising your own will. And I'm asking you here in this restoration for you to submit your will underneath the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe that you need to submit something in your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, restoration is a commitment to follow Christ. Peter's pride had to be subdued before he would become useful to God. In other words, he had to humble himself under the mighty hand of God before he could feed my lambs, lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. In fact, the usefulness and the the entire idea of submission is beautifully described in the book of Psalms where the ideal of, of bowing or bowing, if you will, the ideal of a bowing of an animal's neck to take the yoke that is placed on that particular animal so that its rebellious disobedience would go away. It's almost like the ideal of the way that a horse would be broken in. The horse or the animal has to be broken in to be useful. And hear what the Lord Jesus Christ is communicating to Peter and communicating to you that for you to be useful, you need to, if you will, bow, if you will, your neck. You need to place that yoke upon you. But it's easy and light. We understand from what that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. So Peter experiences the reality of this in verse 18. Listen, you failed once, but you're not going to fail me when you're older. 
they're going to take you and they're going to take you where to a, a place you don't want to be and you will follow me in the years to come. How Peter needed that, how we need that this morning. You know, when you think of that concept here of this path of restoration as a commitment to follow Christ, Jesus said this all over. John chapter 10, verse 27, you remember. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they, what? They follow me. It is really the definition of a believer. It is the definition of a, of a follower, we might even say, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in another place in John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. In other words, by present tense, you, you understand, I've said this hundreds of times, you don't become a believer by walking an aisle and praying a prayer. You demonstrate your love for the Lord Jesus Christ in your compulsion of love for him, your commitment to sacrifice for him that flows out of that relationship and here, a commitment to follow Christ. But Jesus did say this. In fact, you can look over if you'd like in your Bible. If you have it there in your lap, look over in John chapter 14. Here, the ideal of following him is set alongside the theme of loving him. And loving him is set, along the si scene, set alongside the thought of keeping his commandments. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, to follow him is to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. To love him is to keep his commandments. And you might want to just make sure you look at the priority in verse 15. If you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. It's not keep my commandments and demonstrate your love. No, it always begins with a vertical relationship. It always begins with a vertical compulsion. Every usefulness of God's servant for men and women comes out of that compulsion of loving me and then you'll keep my commandments. Look at verse 21, who, 1421. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. Now, he says it this way here. It is he who loves me. In other words, the proof, the root is love. The fruit is keeping his commandments. In fact, if you glance down at 1423, he'll make it right there and understood right. In 1423, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word I love all of those statements there. In other words, to follow me is to keep his word, is to keep his commandments. In fact, John, this same apostle said in 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. John said in 2 John 6, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. Do you remember that the Lord Jesus Christ, you probably know it by heart in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. To do the will of the Father 
is to obey this book. Not just remotely because it's words in a printed page, but because God's will is revealed in his word. Do you remember earlier in John's gospel in 831, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples. And so our obedience, I'll say it again, flows from a relationship with Christ. Specifically, what I'm getting at is this in Mark chapter 8. You might remember this statement in Mark 8, 34. Jesus says, come after me. It's a relationship. He told them in Mark 8, 34 to follow me. He spoke in Mark 8.35 when he said to follow Christ for my sake and the gospel's sake. And so it's the love of Christ that enables us to meet our Lord's demands. So he says to Peter in the context here, you follow me, be my disciple. Follow me in service. Follow me in my suffering. Follow me in my death. Be willing to endure infliction even if you have to die for my sake. Now you would think that Peter would get it. Look back in John chapter 21. This is amazing. He, he says when Peter, when Peter saw him... He said to him, actually back up in 20, excuse me. Peter turned. Now, just stop there for a second. We can't tell exactly what's happening here. What do you mean he turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them? At least right prior to this, they're eating breakfast. And I really believe that the conversation with Peter's restoration took place in front of all the disciples. It could be that in verse 19, when he said to him, follow me, it could be that he got up with Peter and they began to walk. So in verse 20, Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. Now, you say, who's that? Well, the disciple whom Jesus loved is John the Apostle. We know that from John 13. And you know that not only from John 13, but you know that by the description. Look at 2120 again. That's the one who had been reclining at the table close to him and had said, Lord, who is that that is going to betray you? We know that to be John the, the Apostle. And so as they begin to get up, I'm thinking, they're beginning to move and there's John, ever present. Maybe John's thinking, I'm going to write this gospel. You know this is an eyewitness account. And so as he begins to move, Peter turns and says, saw him, look at 2121, and he said to Jesus, what about this man? It's just Peter. Peter, what about this man? Now, it's hard to get the tone inflection, so you tell me what you think he might have meant. Did he turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I'm concerned about my friend John? 
You just told me I'm going to have my arms stretched wide and I'm going to die by crucifixion. And so he turns now, sees John following. He says to the Lord Jesus there in 2121, what about this man? Was he asking out of concern for John? I think more likely Peter is responding to the prophecy of his own death. And I think he's saying to the Lord Jesus Christ, if I have to die, does he? What about this man? Peter asked, what about him? And he turns his focus away from himself and he turns it onto another. I think Matthew Henry nailed it when he said in his commentary about Peter, he is quick sighted abroad and dim sighted at home. He said he's quick sighted abroad and dim sighted at home. And I have to think, have to say, don't we all have that problem? Quick sighted abroad, that is able, we're, we're able to see the things in other people's lives and other people that we sometimes can take criticism about or we give criticism about, but we're dim-sighted in our own heart. We're dim-sighted close. So Peter turns his attention to Jesus and he turns it to John. And what's remarkable is the Lord responds and look how the Lord responds in verse 22. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Kurt, that's why I think he was addressing Peter, strong. In other words, if it's my will that he, John, remains until I come, second coming, what is that to you? Maybe I could put it in the modern vernacular. Peter, it's none of your, what, business. It's none of your business. In fact, look at the end of 22. You can see it there. You follow me. And it's somewhat, it's understood there in the, in the English but it reads just that way. You is what we call in the language, if it's placed first, emphatic. In other words, you follow me. In other words, Peter, don't compare yourself with others. Be content with your calling. And you, Peter, Jesus said, follow me. In other words, you keep on the path that I've laid out for you. But this resulted in a problem. So what kind of problem? Look at the text in verse 23. Uh, an issue arose. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple, of course, John, was not to die. And so John corrects it. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but that if it is my will until I come, what is that to you? I think you could understand. Jesus didn't say that John would not die. 
Jesus just put it in the hypothetical. If it's my will that he remains until I come, it's none of your business, Peter. Obviously, you say, why is this included? Because a false teacher could use this after John the Apostle died. And if he used it after John the Apostle died, it could discredit this gospel. The thought would be, hey, you guys, Jesus said that this disciple wouldn't die, and he actually did die. And if John died, and it, wasn't, it was before he returned, then Christ didn't know. And if Christ didn't know, then he's really not God. So John here protects Christ's integrity by carefully stating what Jesus did and didn't say. He did not say that he wouldn't die, but if I desire for him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You, Peter, follow me. In other words, this is a, a, a word of implication for us. He tells Peter to be content with your calling. Be content with what I've told you and be content with the plan that I have for John. I mean, I might just say to you, God's plan is not always the life you dream up. The ministry you desire, the situation of your business, the situation in your family, the situation with your children, but it is the life that God in his sovereign wisdom knows what's best for you and what's good for you and what's great for his glory. This is an amazing text, beloved. Peter, in his own right, was called to pastoral ministry. And, and we understand that from last week's message. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, which really it would have been he told him to bosco my sheep on the front and the, the back side of that. He told him to poimeno, to tend my flock. But in essence, both of those different commands, you have a responsibility to my flock and I want you to feed them. I want you to feed them spiritual food. And in about 30 years, Peter, when you're old, so he's probably telling him this, Peter's maybe, we think, probably in his mid-30s. And then we know in the year, I'll just say 64 to 67 AD, I usually put it at 65, Peter would suffer martyrdom by Nero, and you know the account, that he didn't consider himself worthy 30 years after this to die in the manner that the Lord Jesus Christ had died and was crucified. And so he asked to be crucified upside down after he watched his own wife crucified in front of him. So think about this. Peter was a brilliant leader, a brilliant communicator, and after he was restored, he went on and preached that opening message in Acts 2 and had 3,000 people converted. But John was called to what we can say was a longer strategic, even written ministry and a written witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. John, as you know, gave us not only this gospel, 
John wrote three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Then John also wrote what? The very last book called the book of Revelation. And we believe, whereas Peter was crucified in 65 AD, John probably wrote the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos, probably around 95 AD. And so what's interesting is that John did live 30 years longer than Peter did, 65 maybe to 95 or shortly thereafter. So, and we also know that we don't think that John, John just might have died of natural causes, though he was exiled to the island of Patmos. In other words, what I'm trying to communicate to you from the word of God is God's plan is different for each of us. He had a plan for Peter. He has a plan for John. He has a plan for you. And what he does with another servant, he might not do with you. And where he's blessed another servant and given them longevity and written witness and maybe uh, a ministry that looks successful, he's put other people in hard places, in places that aren't recognized and God's sovereign over that. And I'm thankful for that. And the reason I'm thankful for that is the next verse. Look at it, and I want you to see it in the context. Because John says, here, John the Apostle, this is the disciple. Praise God. He probably wrote, look at it again, 24. This is the disciple who bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. I love that. You say, well, Scott, when did he write the Gospel of John? I think you remember at the beginning, we think he wrote it around 85. And so you understand, sometimes you're reading the Gospel, and you think he penned it right after the resurrection. No, if Jesus died probably around the year... Uh, scholars would put it between 33 and 36. John was writing this, what, f- nearly 50 years later as he compiled this gospel. But look, he, he wants to come at it formally with you. Look at this in 24. This is the disciple. It's me, John says, who is bearing witness present tense, about these things, in other words, it carries on, and who has written these things, and then notice that last phrase, it's thrown a number of people off, when it says, and we know that his testimony is true. Uh, what, do you, what does he mean by we there? We, he's, he's saying, it's, I'm the disciple in verse 24, I'm bearing witness of these things, he says, I've written these things, and we know. Who's the, who's the we? Well, a uh, number of just good scholars would, would say that we think it's the elders at the church of Ephesus, because John ministered in Ephesus over those years. That church had been framed and formed, and we know John was there, and the we here was those elders in Ephesus. We can't obviously be sure of that, obviously. Some people say here in 24 that we know that his testimony is true, that they would think that the we just includes the witness of the apostles 
affirming the gospel, affirming John. Some even say it's the witness even of believers at this time. But I really believe that the we here is what we can call the editorial we. What does that mean? The editorial we referring to John himself. To John, he's writing with the editorial we. It is John, but he's writing in that sense. Do you remember when, I won't turn you there, but in John 1.14, you probably know it by heart, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us John's writing, the word became flesh, and it dwelt among us. And then this in 114, and we have seen his glory. He speaks there, and I think he uses the editorial we. We have seen his glory. I'm writing, I'm the apostle, but we, and speaking possibly even of the others who were part of that with him, but it's the editorial we. And so here, John is the author. It is an editorial pronoun, if you will, to avoid using the first person. And this is what I could call the oath-giving we, if you will. In fact, look back just two chapters. This will be important. Look in 1935. In fact, if you look at it in 1933, John, of course, is standing at the foot of the cross. Jesus said, behold your mother and behold your son. You know that he's standing there. We talked extensively. 1933, but when they came to Jesus, he's there. And saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now watch this. He, that's John, who saw it, has borne witness, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also believe. I love that statement. He's telling the truth. Hear John saying now in verse 24, and we know that his testimony is true. Could just be the editorial we, possibly the other extended the disciples, but uh, look over one other place. Look over at First John. I still think it's the editorial we. Uh, look over at First John. We've exposited through that. And, um, and it's in First John chapter 1, verse 1. He uses this we in other places. You can listen to that, of course, all of our messages online. But John the Apostle says in First John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, he's talking about himself, but we including others, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. In fact, look at verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. Look at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. In verse 6, if we say that we have no fellowship with him and so forth. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, it's the editorial we. It's John the Apostle, if you will, okay? It is a formal proclamation. It is an oath by the Apostle John an eyewitness concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Praise God for this eyewitness account. In fact, if you're a little bit of a wordsmith, he puts it in the present participle, I would say. Look at verse 24, present participle. This is the disciple who is bearing witness, literally, who is still bearing witness. In other words, he's bearing witness even this morning. And then it says, look at verse 24, who has written these things. He uses what we call the the past participle, who has written these things. He's done it. He's spoken of them. He's written his gospel. And when he says these things, I don't think he's just talking about chapter 21. I don't think he's just talking about chapter 20. He's talking about his entire gospel. That gospel this morning is still bearing witness. That gospel has been written down, eras past tense, these things. So John, finally, at the very end, identifies himself. But, (laughs) this is just John. Though he identifies himself, he does not focus on himself. In fact, I think he had a hard time. I think he just did it for our sake. Listen, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. It's, it's me, but his final words conclude with Jesus' greatness. Say, in what way? Look at the last verse. He said, now there are many, you've seen this before, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written He said, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What a statement. You've seen that statement before. I mean, it may seem like hyperbole. Obviously, it is hyperbole. But I read this week about your life and about my life. That if you just looked at your life alone... And all the words you've ever spoken, all the words you've ever written, all the words you've ever said, all the words ever written about you, all the interaction you've had on the phone and cell phone and in person, it said this, that by the time your life is over, your own life could fill 320 libraries with your personal volumes. And that's just you. (laughs) And, And we're not very important, right? But when you think of the beauty and the majesty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power and the radiance and the truthfulness of Christ and the holiness of Christ, you would have, he would say, you you couldn't fill all the libraries in the world. I, I think someone has said that if you just sat down and read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it would take you about three hours to read them. And John just says here, he says, if I wrote everything down, he said, even the world, the globe in which we live could not contain in books what would have been written about the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, let me say this to you junior higher, if you're a little child, I just want to encourage you with this. 
John's witness, eyewitness account here was not exhaustive, obviously. Couldn't contain it in all the libraries of the whole world. He says that his witness is selective. So he doesn't write exhaustively everything that he did. He writes selective. You say, well, how selective? Well, John's crystal clear what he did. You say, how so? Just look back one chapter. Remember? In chapter 20, verse 30, 20, verse 30, see it with your eyes. Jesus did many other signs. Many. There were seven in the gospel of John, but many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Okay, he's not exhaustive, he's selective. Well, what did he select? Look at verse 31, 2031. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What a statement. These have been selected that you would believe. Listen, you've been listening to me, many of you, at least for 144 sermons. Have you personally put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Not your mom, not your dad, not your grandma, not your grandpa. Have you? He, in other words, John marshaled the truth that he selected that you would understand Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He is the Son of God. He's deity. And that by, leave, by believing, you may have life in his name. Listen, if John wrote on all of Jesus' deeds, the world would be an inadequate library. He is the creator. He is the incarnate word. He is the obedient son. He is the suffering Messiah. He is the risen Lord. But there is far more than one could ever write down of who he is. So listen, in light of COVID-19, restoration is found right here. And I'm speaking to you directly. This comes to us for Peter's restoration and but it applies to us. It is a restoration first that is compelled by love for Christ. You as you sit there, is it your greatest desire? Is it your greatest compulsion? Is it your, the, your heart of hearts? Has it been manifested in the last two weeks that about everything, you're more about loving Christ than Instagram. You're more about following Fox News, following CNN News, following being up to date, that you have such a compulsion and a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me also say, certainly, we're to be compelled by love for Christ, but I don't want you to miss that Christ is compelled to love you. It could be that the most touching thing out of chapter 21 is not that he called Peter back into restoration, but that the Lord Jesus Christ was seeking Peter. Peter, do you love me? He was the one seeking out this man. He was the one pursuing this man. He was the one who came to him on the shore and said, have you considered the other side of the boat? He's still coming. But here's where restoration lies. It lies here, if you will. It lays here in being compelled by the love of Christ and his love for you. And so I'm asking you, do you love him? Do you love him in the same way when you bowed your knee to him? Do you still have freshness with him? Do you still worship with him? 
Even me this week, I had to put on my earphones, go on a walk, and sometimes when I go on a walk, I just put this one recording artist on because he just refreshes my heart. It's Chris Tomlin. And I've been listening to the same album over the years so that I don't lose my own freshness in prayer and in my love for Christ. And if he came to you today and he's going to restore you, he doesn't want to know about your deeds. He doesn't want to know about your service. Those things are good. They follow after. He just wants to know, do you love him in the same way when you first came to him? So it's a restoration compelled by love. But secondly, it's a restoration that's confirmed by sacrifice. Listen, some of you are being tried greatly. And I don't say that lightly. But listen, your compulsion of love is confirmed in your sacrifice that whatever he wants of you, wherever he calls you, whatever he demands of you, your heart is confirmed by, Lord, yes, Lord, I obey you willingly. And then thirdly, it's a restoration committed to following Christ. Listen, is he preeminent in your life? Or do you have another relationship that's more important than him? Has another person taken the place of God? Has a business taken the place of God? Has an ambition taken the place of God? Have your own children taken the place of your own relationship with God? Whatever it is, you fill in the blank. You've got to keep on following the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we're well reminded when he told the church at Laodicea, you have lost your first, what? Love. I pray that that wouldn't be the case here. Here was Peter restored. Our restoration looks the same. It's compelled by love. It's confirmed by sacrifice. It's committed to following Christ and Knowing so many of your hearts, I know that remains your heart. Listen, I may say one thing, and I, I don't mean to, to say this as just a shock, but if you think COVID-19 has brought havoc in our globe, and it has, you might want to read the book of Revelation. Because when our lives draw to an end, it's going to look different than now. And, and these things are going to keep us. It kept Peter. It kept him. It restored him. It compelled him. It confirmed that for him. It committed him. You follow me, Jesus would say. And I pray that that would be the passion of our own heart this morning. And the only left thing left to say is amen. And we finish the gospel of John. And I'm really fired up because what's next for us is the book of Ephesians. Looking forward to that.